Number 119 is the one that Jonathan has asked that we mark this evening, and we'll sing that at the appropriate time. Song number 119. Certainly with the statements made about the beauty that surrounds us today, the opportunity and the blessing that we have with the health and the opportunity to enjoy it, what a great thing it is to be able to say we can come together in the name of the Lord and to do so in as friendly a place as this is without fear of being persecuted or harassed by, say, those who would wish our harm, and yet to do so in the liberty and the freedom to where we can open the Word and be challenged and charged and uplifted by it. It truly is a good thing for us to be able to come together, and tonight may I again state my appreciation to Brother Jonathan, I think, for delivering the lesson last last Lord's Day evening. Appreciate all the men here who are so willing and able to step in, teach a class, lead singing, lead prayer, preach a lesson, if that be the thing that is asked of them. Peeping again, as we've often noted, is certainly blessed in that regard, and I appreciate Jonathan for being willing to do that. I think he mentioned to me it was the first lesson he had preached and what a, what a terrific job he did on that first occasion. Tonight, as we continue our study of the Hebrew letter of the New Testament, we had been discussing the sanctuary, Christ's superior sanctuary on our last lesson. And in fact, as we had looked at not only the courtyard, but also the holy place itself, that leaves but one aspect of the tabernacle, the most holy place, and it is that to which we shall turn our attention this evening. Some introductory thoughts that will spur us on our way toward that goal and toward that end would in fact be these. We should not depart far from a recollection of those key thoughts and ideas that have been our mainstay throughout all the book of Hebrews. We have seen over and again the message of encouragement reminding the saints of that day as well as us today how that in Christ are things which are better. In Christ are those things which are superior. And so it is that we also notice that the same is true not only with respect to Christ's superiority over the prophets, over Moses, over the angels, over Joshua, and over many of the other aspects of previous means of God's deliverance, we also notice his sanctuary is superior. We looked again at the courtyard, and we had appreciated that in that courtyard were two especial pieces of furniture. There was the altar of burnt offering and then the laver. We noticed that those two were vital in that. For that day, they were required for a person to be able to rightly appear in the holy place and thus have the opportunity to enter on in before God. We also learned that in regard to the church, that altar burnt offering was taken care of for us at Calvary when Christ offered the sacrifice for our sins, and that labor was representative of the very act of baptism which is required in order for one to enter into, in fact, that place of recognition in safety before God. Inside the holy place, we saw three pieces of furniture. One of them was the golden candlestick. Another was the table of showbread. Thirdly was the altar of incense. All three of them, again, were vitally significant in the Old Testament era. And they also pointed directly to the blessings we enjoy in Jesus. The altar of burnt offering, I'm sorry, the altar of incense reminding us about our access to God. The capability and the opportunity we have to access Him, not only through prayer, but the realization of the opportunity of worship that it makes possible. 
the table of showbread reminds us of the communion we enjoy with God through the character of His Son. We indeed have been made heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. Finally, the golden candlestick, reminding us of the precious light made available to us through God's realization of His will. Just as surely as we remember, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, so too God showed light to the Old Testament individuals through His relationship and word. And today, He shares forth His light to us also in a very similar way. Jesus indeed is the light of the world, John 8 verse 12. It is tonight then that we're prepared to enter in not just to the holy place, but to the most holy place. What were the pieces of furniture in there? And what did they signify? And what do they mean for you and for me today? Tonight as we consider those matters and that most holy place, might we again introduce it in ways very similar to those that we have done before. First of all, specifying the exact details, admittedly somewhat briefly, but then asking much more thoroughly what would be the significance for us. Inside that most holy place, we need to remind ourselves of some of the details that go along with it. Here are just a few of them. We remember the tabernacle itself had the following dimensions. It was, of course, a tent-like structure. It had dimensions of some 30 feet in length, 10 feet in width, and 10, I'm sorry, those are units of cubits, 30 cubits in length, 10 cubits wide, and 10 cubits in height. As we appreciate that particular degree of those dimensions, you'll notice that it itself was divided into two compartments that were unequal in size. We see particularly the holy place was by far the larger. It had dimensions of some 20 by 10 by 10 in units of cubits. That left, of course, 10 by 10 by 10. Notice the perfect cubical character, 10 by 10 by 10 for the most holy place. That will be significant shortly. As you appreciate with me that particular thought, the next thing that should be very clear to us is that whereas many priests were able to enter the holy place, and they did so, of course, by decree and declaration of God, we notice that those who were allowed to enter the most holy place were exceedingly few. In fact, there was only one person allowed to enter the most holy place, and only he could do that once in a year. That reminds us again, this was an exceedingly special place seen by very, very few people. In fact, the large rank and file of all Israelites never saw the most holy place. Again, only the high priest could see it, and only he one time in a year. Thus, if one were not of the tribe of Levi, if one were not, in fact, the high priest, you would never have been allowed to enter, by decree of God, that most holy place. What was God signified by having a room set aside that so few people ever saw? That means the furniture that was set up in it, by and large, was furniture no one ever beheld. No one ever had opportunity to witness it. No one ever had opportunity, really, to appreciate its beauty. That leads us to notice, then, what was the furniture in this most holy place. By and large, you could be described as only one piece of furniture. Now, we'll see it was a bit extensive, but just this one piece. There near the bottom, 
you'll notice it was that rather precious Ark of the Covenant. With regard to that Ark of the Covenant, you'll notice that beside it, I simply wrote the words, the associated items. And I proceeded to remind us of some of the features of this Ark. Now keep in mind with me that this particular room was 10 by 10 by 10 in dimensions of cubits. That would mean in terms of feet, it was 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. But notice sitting at its middle was this Ark of the Covenant whose dimensions were far smaller, two and a half by one and a half by one and a half in units of cubits. And with regard to those features and matters, what was inside, as Brother Lucas read for us a few moments ago, found in the book of Hebrews, we learned the following ideas. The precious tables that contain the Ten Commandments was the first thing that was placed in that Ark of the Covenant. Later we learned some other things were added, namely these. You'll notice that Aaron's rod that budded. Now that rod that budded didn't do so until Numbers the 17th chapter. Hence, that would not come until a little bit of time later, but that too was eventually added to the contents of the ark. And finally, we notice a golden pot of that manna that God, in fact, fed and sustained the children of Israel with for six days a week for that totality of 40 years. We also later find that a pot of that was also placed inside the ark of the covenant. However, that is at all. For you'll also notice that on the top of that ark, we learn some other things, perhaps in words like this. The top of the ark of the covenant was a plate or a sheet of solid gold. This sheet was recognized and called the mercy seat. And in fact, situated on each end of it were two rather impressive cherubims. In fact, you and I perhaps are familiar with the singular form of that word, the word cherub. There was one on each end, facing each other with their wings outstretched. This all was specified by God as it related to this construction of the mercy seat. And yet, as one makes note of the significance of that mercy seat, you'll notice that something very significant is stated in Exodus 25. I would ask you to take note of that passage as we keep before us tonight the significance of the Ark of the Covenant and particularly that mercy seat. In Exodus 25, but one verse is the only one that you and I need to read for the moment. If I might, allow me to simply read verse number 21. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the Ark, and in the Ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And that alone reminded us of this testimony that God had specified. And then in verse number 22, And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So if you can picture it with me, this mercy seat directly between those cherubim was the place God specified, I will commune with thee, I will meet with thee, and thus this was representative of and ideally identified with the very presence of God. Perhaps a picture would be in order. We from time to time in this series have attempted to look at various pictures an artist's rendition, if you please, of what this particular item may have appeared like. 
Here is one artist's rendition of this Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top of it. You'll notice we particularly have a side view. You'll notice the staves in the sides of it that were required by God and specified by Him as the means by which it was to be moved. And on the top, you notice the two cherubims with outstretched wings facing one another. And directly between was that place in which God had said that I will meet with thee. Perhaps we are now in a position to more deeply appreciate why was the rank-and-file Israelite not allowed to enter into and to witness this place wherein the presence of God was? What was the reason for the limitation and the restriction? That will be a part of what will be the remainder of our lesson. Let's now consider some three lessons that we can extract and utilize to assist us in our understanding of this most holy place and the significance that it will have for you and for me today. First of all, our opening lesson. From Hebrews 9.24, we learn the following. That this tabernacle, and in particular the most holy place, was a figure of the true. That language in the Greek means it pointed to something far deeper and more significant than it. The mere realization of that Ark of the Covenant and this most holy place pointed to something much deeper and far more significant and important. What is it? You'll notice, interestingly, in regard to that presence of God that was stated to associate to this mercy seat, that helps us appreciate what is the whole, most holy place for you and for me. May we quickly say it's not in some temple construction in the city of Jerusalem. It is not in some place in Chicago, Illinois, in that rather well-known temple or tabernacle edifice that's positioned there. It is not in Salt Lake City, Utah, as some in our very uh, country would tell us that it is. The holy, most holy place is in heaven. That is taught to us in Hebrews chapter 4, a lesson that we considered a few weeks ago now. You and I are in fact particularly taught that Jesus is now entered into the most holy place. Where is the Savior now? He's certainly in Jerusalem. He is in fact in heaven itself. We've been told that he has gone there and in fact he now sits as the mediator on the right hand of God for you and for me. The most holy place, you see, as taught to us now, is heaven itself. That indeed seems to easily help us appreciate the lesson so far. Just as God's presence was on that mercy seat in the most holy place, His presence is in heaven itself. Christ the Son also reigns there. That is the utmost place of holiness. In Psalm 11, verse 4, we read the following passage. The Lord's temple is in heaven. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyelids try, his eyes behold, even unto the son, the children of men. God's throne, you see, is in heaven. That is the ultimate, final, most holy place. Notice something else we can easily appreciate in that thought. What about those equal dimensions to which we alluded before? That most holy place was this room arrangement, 10 by 10 by 10 in dimensions of cubits. It was a perfect cube. And yet, as we turn to Revelation 21.16, we learn that in John's remarkable description and vision of heaven, what were the dimensions of the heavenly city? 
If we were to return to that passage and look, we notice it was a perfect cube. Equal dimensions, breadth to length to height. Thus, it was reminiscent of, in the vision of John, the perfect recognition of the things stated with regard to the most holy place. Now, the actual size in terms of number was different. It was ten cubits here. Remember in the Revelation, it was several thousand furlongs. That part, in terms of its specifics, As we remember in the Revelation, those numbers, however, were figurative in that they pointed us to the totality of God's perfection. Heaven will be perfect in every regard. We shouldn't take those numbers as the literal size. Heaven will be large enough for all who should be there will be there. There will be ample room, if you please, ample opportunities. For isn't it true that Jesus said in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. The perfectness then of that cubical arrangement in the Revelation, not to be taken literally in terms of the size, but to be taken identically in terms of its perfection. Nothing lacking, nothing amiss, nothing of a shortcoming character. All will be ideal in every regard. But notice that's not all. For we notice that that place in which God's presence was situated in that mercy seat was of course a place of great holiness a place of complete holiness, for God is absolutely holy. In 1 Peter 1.16 we read, Be ye holy, for I am holy. That isn't Randy speaking that. That was God's revelation affirming so. And it's a direct quotation of Leviticus 19.2. God is the one that's holy. You and I as sinful, mortal individuals thus could never approach into that most holy place Notice in the Old Testament, the high priest could not merely wander in there any time he wanted to. He could only enter one time a year. That, in fact, will be a significant point for us to consider again in a moment. But think with me just for a bit about the matter of holiness. If holiness was so critical in that Old Testament era, perhaps we should give it some thought today. Is holiness required in order for us to enter heaven? Must that be descriptive of your life or mine if we were to have any hope, really, of entering into that sublime place called heaven? And, of course, the New Testament overwhelmingly affirms the answer to be yes, because, again, be ye holy, for I am holy. Later we read in that very same chapter, 1 Peter 1, about the reality of Christ's blemishless blood, his spotless character saved us from sin by sacrifice, and only in that way are we redeemed from our sins. You see, if you and I are clouded by sin, contaminated by the stain of it, then that guilt will forever bar us from entrance into heaven, just as that high priest had to be cleansed from his sin before he could enter into the most holy place. You and I must be cleansed from ours before we have the opportunity to enter the most holy place. It is an exact analogy in that regard. But notice perhaps one final thing on that slide. You and I are warned on a number of occasions with regard to that very idea in the New Testament. Perhaps one that comes to mind in Revelation 19.8. 
there is one inch as close to the close of the Holy Bible. We read that the saints were clothed with righteousness. Interesting question. What if an individual is not clothed in righteousness? That is to say, what if an individual is not cataloged as holy? Consequence, that person will not be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19.8 You notice that you and I as saints are those which will, that to which we look, enjoy the climbs of heaven forevermore. You and I are His bride, the bride of Christ. If we thus are not holy, we can't be His spotless bride. We can't be the precious virgin that He has in fact taken to Himself. Rather in sin and in unholiness, we are the ones that will be rejected. We must thus be clothed in righteousness. Only then will we, will we be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Thus, a particular matter of practicality, are you clothed in righteousness and am I? Are we living day by day in a way to where we will be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? For that's the only way we can enter the most holy place. But perhaps a second lesson. In addition to that one, might we give some thought to yet another? One of the other features that we noted earlier about that tabernacle was that it consisted of these two compartments. There was the holy place, that again was the larger, and then there was the most holy place. There was not one commonness in the sense of a whole, rather they were divided by a rather notable veil. And you'll notice that as one gives some consideration to that veil, it is described for us in Exodus 26, and another reference is found also in Second Chronicles 3. As we look at that particular veil, you might notice with me that it's probably not like what you and I could have imagined. That word veil may make us think of a very thin kind of covering, an exceedingly thin tablecloth or something like that. This veil was nothing like that. This veil, if one reads the descriptions in Exodus 26 as well as in Second Chronicles 3, you find that there was an extensive structure required to hold it up. It was no small, minor, little thin curtain. Though it is true the Hebrew word means curtain or something that's directly related to it, you might also notice that one particular lexicon renders it like this. More properly, it is that which habitually cuts off or shuts off. In other words, it completely conceals that which is on the other side of it. It may well have been that this curtain was several inches thick. If you go back and read again that which God required to be in it, there were several kinds of fabrics. And as they would have been placed together, quite likely this structure would have been a good three to four inches thick. That's the kind of veil that we're considering. Embroidered on the outside of it was cherubims. And as one gives some thought to the significance of all of this, you'll notice again there was a rather significant separation by that veil. Why is that important? What if a priest just idly meandered into the most holy place when in fact it was not the Day of Atonement? It was not the day he should be entering there. Was there penalty? Was there punishment? Or did God overlook it? 
All we need to do is look interestingly at what occurs next on that slide. The penalty was death. One was not allowed to enter that most holy place except on again the high priest on that, on that day of atonement. The penalty was immediate death. Doesn't that speak volumes again about the sanctity of that most holy place? What it symbolized and what was represented in there if one entered it accidentally. Death was the consequence. What does that idea of separation remind us of today? There again is the most holy place, heaven itself awaiting the faithful. There will be no accidental entrance to heaven. So many in our world seem to be under the impression that any number of kinds of lifestyles will be sufficient to allow one to enter heaven. All that one needs to do is have some perhaps meager belief that Jesus is the Son of God and that's enough. Or at least that's what they think. When yet they are still clouded in sin, for they have never been baptized for the remission of their sins, they have never approached the throne of God by His grace and His mercy, friend, there will be no separation, there will be no entrance into heaven unless one has been removed from the character of that sin. That's the whole idea of that veil. And that veil plays a major part in Matthew 27, verse 51. For on the occasion of our Savior's crucifixion, that very afternoon, that veil, as thick as it was, was rent top to bottom, completely in two pieces. Notice again what that signified and what it tells to you and to me. No human being could have torn a set of fabric that thick with any degree of ease at all, especially from top to bottom. Notice it had to be God that ripped it. It had to be the great God of heaven who by his amazing strength and might rendered that veil in two pieces. And that he did indicating once and for all that you and I, the human family, has access to the most holy place. What those Israelites by and large were never able to realize the human family now can appreciate. How blessed we are. We have access to the most holy place. How do we know that? Hebrews 10 verse 19 tells us, having access to the most holy by the blood of Christ, and the Hebrew writer was speaking to all of us. He wasn't talking about some high priest under the Old Testament regime. He was speaking to you and to me. We have been granted access to the most holy place, heaven itself. Do you want to go to heaven? Do I want to go to heaven? Access is now available. The opportunity is now ours. As you can perhaps see in that particular lesson, that most holy place held a very special meaning to all the Israelites. Can you imagine perhaps the typical Israelite asking the high priest, what does the most holy place look like? When you went in there, what did you see? Because again, by and large, they never got to see it. Can you just hear him describing, there's this mercy seat where God meets with us. His presence is symbolized by that location. This precious golden Ark of the Covenant is there and those things contained in it are reminiscent of His guidance, His communion, His leadership of us. Furthermore, between those golden cherubims, we appreciate that the very communion and He has promised to meet with us. You and I can surround His throne forevermore, sing praises to Him, 
For God's presence is there, the Holy Spirit and the Son also there. It is a place where His presence is. Revelation 21 describes it as a place where no night is there. Perhaps in light of those thoughts, we are ready to look at one final lesson this evening. What else might we conclude about this most holy place? Perhaps this one that we've already touched on already, but one that we'll use to draw our lesson to its conclusion this evening. Entrance into that most holy place. Hebrews 6 verses 19 and 20 tell us that Jesus has already entered there. And yet in Revelation 14, 4, we're told, Follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. If it's true that the Lord is already there, and if you and I are able to follow Him, you and I can also be there too. Heaven is not some place that's impossible to get to. It's a place, and this book is the road map to get there. It details and specifies what God did for you and for me so that we too can one day be there in the most holy place. In terms of that most holy place, Ephesians 5 verse 23 tells us that Jesus is the Savior of the body. The Savior of the body. That means only the body is going to be saved. What body is that? Colossians 1.18 tells us, He is the head of the body, the church, which is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. If the body is that which is to be saved, and if Christ's body is the church, that then means the church is the only ones that shall be saved. Are you a member of the church? The church for which Christ died. The church that He purchased with His blood, Act 20.28. The church that he promised to build, Matthew 16, 18. The church that still stands today as the sole embodiment and pillar and ground of the truth, 1 Timothy 6, 15. The church that is the bride of Christ, Revelation 19, 8. And that rests upon his simplicity in all regards, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 and 3. Are you a member of that church, of that body? If you are, then... Be thankful unto God for the entrance into the holy place, the most holy place that He has granted for you. But if you aren't a member of that body or not a member of that church, it is true that the churches of Christ salute you in Revelation 16, 16, or Romans 16, 16. If we could be of assistance to you tonight in your becoming a member of that body, realize that it is not the church or it is not any particular person here that adds you to the church. Christ is the only head. Only He can add you to that body. I cannot do it. No man in Rome can do it. No man in New York City can do it. It requires the Son of God. He must add you. Has your name been added upon the register of His body? If it has not, why not tonight? Why not let this very day be the day in which Christ adds you to His body? And when he does so, you too will have access to the most holy place. You see, unlike most typical Jews who never saw the most holy place, every one of us are in fact anxiously looking forward to that day when we will be in it and enjoy it throughout all the sublime ages of eternity. That's what we're looking forward to. Jesus died to make that possible. Have you showed your gratitude and thankfulness by being obedient to him? If not, you will be cast out. You will, in fact, forfeit any opportunity to enter that most holy place. 
Tonight, you need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and do that with all your heart. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Furthermore, repent of your sins, meaning turn away from them in both mind and action, and then confess the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior. Upon so doing, you will simply be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins, Acts 22.16 and Acts 2.38. And if we could help one or more do that tonight, let us know in what way we can help. If you need to be rededicated to the cause of your Savior, we'd be honored to pray with you and for you. And in fact, the Bible enjoins that upon us. If we could help you in either of those ways, won't you let that be known while together we stand and while we sing.